Welcome to Machine Learning. So companies are making money by uh, preparing data. And one of the big problems with AI is you just can't turn AI on. It has to, it has to ingest data, it has to learn, be trained against it. And um, the models have to be specific to the structure of the data and the volume of the data. So one of the questions that a colleague had was how many neurons and how many layers should he use in his deep learning network? And I guess it all depends on how well the different layers are generalizing the information, what, what uh, features that it's able to extract and uh, how important those features are. So it's not it's not clear uh, how the the layers extract out the features, but you can see that in a smaller models, like when you apply it to binary gates and you calculate the weights uh, for each one of the 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 gate models, like OR, AND, XOR, NOR, and as you calculate you can hand calculate those weights and using um, either an RLU activation function or a sigmoid function you can calculate the uh, binary states <clears throat> so in a kind of a smaller model you could you can predict how the weights then will give you the desired output. But when you're dealing with larger models where you're dealing with say a million images and you're trying to correctly classify the labels on those images, it doesn't become as clear. Um, for example, ImageNet had 23 layers and uh, then it, it pulled those features from those layers <clears throat> And then it had a dense layer at the end for its labeling, which was discrete. So a discrete layer, a dense layer. And that uh, then allowed it to perform very well. In fact, uh, better than most humans could do at recognizing images of various types. And that's because it had more exposure to more images types. However... This does bring up a good point about domain knowledge. If you take, for example, AI and look how well it does at recognizing radiology images for cancer uh, or tumor patients, that there's a lot of false alarms or false negatives that it's generating. Say if it was even generating 4% false negatives, so it's 96% accurate, 4% are false negatives and it's looking at a lot of these uh, radiology scans that's still four percent of that population that has undergoes additional treatment or additional um, verification of, of that can of different types of cancer and just only to discover that the AI was wrong so 
then you say ask the question well how would does the ai compare to a single radiologist and in most cases right now the ai performs um, less than the professional radiologist at identifying uh, cancer. So the, then the question becomes, well, maybe it performs at, let's say, 4% less accuracy than an, a, a professional radiologist, but it's capable <coughs> of processing, uh, let's say, 100 times as many images per day as a radiologist could do. So yes, it's 4%. So now the hospital has to uh, account for the four percent false uh, false negative or false positives, and then there's the insurance that has to be paid on that, and whether or not the ha- hospital should take liability for that insure or take the write off on the false positive, or uh, if it's transferred onto the insurance company. Difficult to see how that is ha- actually handled unless you are in the healthcare profession and you're seeing the results of of how AI is performing. So there is is that problem. Now the other problem is that you have companies out there with huge amounts of legacy data. The data is not all centralized. They don't have data warehouses. They don't have data marts. Uh, A lot of the data has to be, is maybe stored in a, a data lake. It would need to be extracted, cleansed, um, transformed and then load, loaded and then transformed or transformed then loaded and uh, once you have that process that could be quite a long process there's lots of potentials for breaks in that pipeline as new versions of the software come out modifications to the data change uh, certain data becomes obsolete others become new data new data tables new data sources uh, and you're trying to bring all that together and un- in an understandable fashion in an automated way that can uh, be maintained that's one of my things that I get concerned about uh, when you're dealing with automation is if you have an automated process that uh, generates code or uh, does the ETL process and then you have modification things are changing dynamically let's say that the time series is even compressed that you're having daily changes to the system which could affect the pipeline potentially break it uh, or obsolete certain sections of the pipeline how do you deal with all that change well you're going to need tools. You're going to need tools to analyze the data, um, reconcile the data, make sure that things are balancing and um, that you have some sort of logging or reporting to discover when there's problems in the pipeline itself. And so there are companies now that are specializing on helping companies bring their get data together in an integrated world. And as I started to think about that, I think that uh, I was thinking about how we have data pipelines that we deal with, and that's easier than process pipelines. But you have data pipelines, and that's kind of like a flow 
of information in the form of data and it's moving from different sources into uh, different sources through like maybe web API or uh, file extract, file upload, batch processing, etc. You have some method to extract the data and then upload the data. So one, one classic way of doing that with the data warehouse is to build staging tables, which are flat files. And um, you, you bring all your data, extract your data out into the flat file, and then you have processes that run against the flat file and import them into the uh, different tables. The reason you want to have that capability is if there's any break in that process, you can rerun it and uh, fix it and then rerun it and reload your data. So you, you, you can you'd have constant uh, uptime. And so you have, maybe you have a, a, a dual system. One system is running it and checking uh, to see if there are any problems and the other is running in production. So if, if the one uh, that's doing the verification detects that there's changes in uh, schema, it's looking at the maybe a metadata comparison of the schemas. If this detects that something changed, it alerts the uh, data engineer that uh, something has changed, what has changed, and for example, if, if they change the data type, that can, that can break your process. Um, if there was string data, but it's a mixture of dates, numbers, and, uh, and text, then knowing that might be important because you wouldn't want to be trying to move that into a, um, into a, uh, a numeric field or a date field and the only one option would then be to maintain it in a string format. So I had that happen today because some of the data I have is string but it, it also contained uh, string and numeric data and so my link code I was doing on one side I was it was uh, it had a foreign key to another table and I was doing a uh, convert dot in 16 which converts it to a 16 um, 16 bit word or two words maybe four words maybe four words I guess it depends on how big your word is and uh, I'm thinking that that would be eight bits so 32 bits probably is my guess uh, four words and uh, so it, uh, it was giving me this error, and I was looking at the error, and in my mind I was thinking, well, it should work. It's, it's got the correct join, and I was looking at the join, and, and uh, it looked correct, and the column was data was correct. But the problem is, is they had segmented the data. So some of it was numeric, some of it was text, and um, they were using a sequence number, and the sequence number was not a key, it was not a primary key, and 
it was just a, uh, it was a, it's a number like where you're advancing forward. So anyway, in the, in that process, I, I, I then had to add another filter to, uh, segment my data. Now this is classic of all ETL processes is that your discovery of the data types is a constant problem. And, uh, I think that that where could be where AI could fit in nicely in this data preparation. So a lot of startup companies now are, are making money off of uh, data preparation. You know, you, 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 you run through this company, they do the data analytics, they analyze the data, they have the tools for ingesting the data, they can repair the data, they, they have the knowledge of the APIs to do the transformations. And they have a certain objective to get that data in a certain form uh, that is consistent and clean and then uh, have the the data that does not meet those standards then be cleaned up like duplicates or bad data, um, data that is orphaned, things like that need to be repaired or, or corrected and it would skew uh, results. So that becomes kind of the challenges, especially as you have AI, and I've, I pointed this out with GPT-3, is it doesn't seem like it was trained against good data. It was just fed, you know, a lot of data. And so it's trying now to make sense of that data, it's neural machinery, and it's very confusing because, you know, what is good data, what is bad data, what is believable, what is not believable. And so... You know, you look at the social media and they're in, they're trying to protect against certain type of content, content that could be harmful, uh, content that is not accurate. And, and, and so they're having to hire human beings, maybe even uh, as high as 30,000 to, in one article I read, to do the filtering to check for harmful content, people that are saying things, um, blocking certain things that are not true, so forth in that media in order to protect the framework. So the AI uh, would need to be able to perform at that level and then at what cost uh, for training to get the training, the data in the good format so it could accurately learn from it. See, AI is very good in particle predictions. For example, you can take a block of sand and you can uh, you can model, you can model what the sand will do. So it uh, takes the particle system and it uses gravity and the element of randomness. But uh, there isn't really that much randomness that we, in terms of what you might think, because uh, they can watch how the sand might, a block of sand might uh, dissolve downward as it hits on impact and the forces of gravity and mass affect it on those particles and they dis they dissipate and the energy dissipates and so they take the the neural net and it's trained against actual data and then it starts to predict what that particle system will do and it's very accurate so uh, deep learning networks are very accurate at predicting what uh, complex particle systems can do that would be you know we talk about a block of sand could be uh, molecules of water it could be uh, a flame and those uh, types of particles can the data can be gathered from devices 
and then the AI can train against it. So we might, you know, might go from the standpoint of uh, particle system prediction and trying to do some of that with social media. But again, uh, you know, you have the you have the natural language processing, which is people are describing ideas and concepts and relationships, and sometimes those. Uh, concepts are not accurate. Sometimes those relationships are not accurate. And how does the AI handle all those perceptions? Well, in talking with GPT-3, it said it needed more compute power. So in other words, it needed a larger data set to try to understand all the, the poss possible perceptions. And when I told it, well, human beings have an infinite number of perceptions, it, it had a problem with that because you can't build an infinite computer and even if you did build an infinite computer, it would be the size of the universe. And everything would be so slow because the transmission of information across the computer, because it's the size of the universe, would be in light in, in multiple deck years or, or maybe in billions of years. Okay, so the, the idea of an infinite computer uh, itself is a paradox. And so, you know, the idea that a computer could, could achieve infinity is not possible. And so the idea that God is a computer is not possible. And so uh, he definitely holds a power that, that not even a machine could think to, to uh, approach. And we, we uh, are very fortunate to have a God like that to worship. But going back to the machine, uh, yeah, so in social media, self-driving cars, another problem with self-driving cars is that it has to handle generalized driving behavior and um, unpredictable behaviors of the cars around it. And so, you know, it can't panic and drive off the road because a car uh, approaches it. Uh, in an erratic way, maybe uh, it's a drunk driver. So it's got to take, and it, it detects from its AI that it's driving erratic, the car is driving erratic, and is potentially a drunk driver, and to take emergency evasive maneuvers. And uh, there's been some cases where the Tesla cars have done very well in that case, where there's uh, things that have fallen off a truck, or uh, a car slams on its brakes, or the the tr uh, traffic stops on suddenly and the Tesla vehicle uh, executes its emergency evasive maneuver. But there's also the kind where it's self-driving and it's not fully autonomous. It's not a level five where, you know, you don't have a steering wheel. You don't need a steering wheel. Uh, and it uh, is making a left-hand turn and it incorrectly calculates the trajectory of the turn, so it's taking the turn very wide and, and it's uh, hugging a curve. But the, the human user perceives that distortion as the AI has made a mistake, when in reality the AI just uh, exaggerated its uh, turning on the left-hand turn. And it probably wouldn't have run into the curve but the, it would it scared the human being because the distortion was strong enough 
that it believed it couldn't be trusted. So basically there was a presumption of distrust to begin with. It didn't do it exactly the way the human being drove. So it, it thought that it was making an error. In reality, it may not have been an error. And also you have the publicity of media. So people will become scared of AI and there's automatically the presumption of distrust even though the engineering and the reliance and statistics are very good that uh, that there are probably going to be less errors because you you look at uh, people and they're texting while they're driving they're not even looking at where they're going they're looking at their device i just saw a lady drive by me here and she's looking at her device in her left in her right hand while she's driving thinking that she'll see something in her peripheral vision while she's driving and uh such a dangerous behavior to be engaged in but yet you know with uh, the constant attraction of social media and what people are saying and messaging you know these devices people hold in their hands well if that's going to be the case then would you rather have take your chances with self-driving vehicle that it will uh, be able to statistically get you from one place to another most of the time so again we're, we get back to this uh, the breast cancer analysis where the AI is 94% accurate but uh, in 89% of the time uh, a human being a human radiologist who could probably detect uh, the cancer better than the AI and but the human radiologist can't do a hundred times the amount of work that the AI can because it's scalable it can uh, upload images to the cloud it can process those images off the uh, s3 Amazon cloud and it's uh, neural machinery uh, is very good at identifying objects but uh, but maybe not good enough. And so there, there's this constant desire to increase the ability of the AI, either through uh, some form of new machine, more massive uh, uh, neurons like the Cerebrus model where you're taking 850,000 cores and you're throwing a lot of compute power to try to, to increase the accuracy. So those are all the paradoxes that we live in. Um, as things become more automated, as machines become more dependent upon, and how we have to start changing how we think about our reality as the march of the machines continues to become more intrusive in our life. And it will be more intrusive. Um, I was just looking at today, Digital Inc which is uh, basically a digital plastic medium connected to an electronic source that can do color. So basically everything uh, could, w with an electric source could have a digital image on it. So you could have cars that are changing with digital imaging, clothes that are changing with digital imaging, and uh, you could have imaging that's being run by the computer everywhere. And these, these uh, panels will be very low cost, flexible, very durable to the weather, and uh, constantly providing a stream of uh, visual information.